We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by independent consultant and author of the forthcoming book, The Years of Cycling Dangerously, William Foreman. Gavin, it's always great to be here. And regular commentator, Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. Tonight we'll be discussing the US State Department touting Washington's concern about ongoing Chinese attempts to intimidate Taiwan and stressing its rock-solid commitment to the island. The Cabinet accepting party caucus consensus on cuts to the general budget. Pangreen politicians appearing to back accelerated decommissioning of the Taichung power plant. A SpaceX rocket carrying two Taiwanese satellites into orbit earlier this week. Google opening a hardware R&D base in New Taipei's Banchi. Chow District, the Consumers Foundation report, which says that, well, large numbers of vendors apparently are selling cigarettes to miners here. And the America's Cup in Kaohsiung, well, maybe one day. But we'll begin where last week ended and this week began with the incursions into Taiwan's air defence identification zone on Saturday by 13 Chinese warplanes, including H-6K bombers that can carry nuclear payloads. And on Sunday, China sent 15 military planes into the air defence identification zone and those aircraft included Y-8 anti-submarine aircraft and reconnaissance aircraft, as well as several types of fighter jets. The Air Force was once again forced to scramble fighter jets to monitor the Chinese aircraft, broadcast radio warnings and deploy air defence missile systems to track the planes in response to the incursions on both days. Now they were the largest incursions by Chinese aircraft into Taiwan's airspace so far this year. The US responded to Saturday's incursion with the State Department saying Washington notes with concern the pattern of ongoing attempts by Beijing to intimidate its neighbours including Taiwan. And the White House urges Beijing to cease its military, diplomatic and economic pressure against Taiwan and instead engage in meaningful dialogue with Taiwan's democratically elected representatives. And the statement went on to say that the US will continue to assist Taiwan in maintaining sufficient self-defence capability, as outlined in the three communiques, the Taiwan Relations Act and the six assurances, and that the US commitment to Taiwan is rock solid. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs here in Taiwan said it sincerely welcomed such comments by the Biden administration as it showed its support for Taiwan. Even the KMT came out and said it welcomed the comments, but it also added they're good because they encourage cross-strait dialogue. Now, speaking in an interview with ICRT earlier this week, US-Taiwan Business Council Chief Rupert Hammond Chambers said that China's biggest military incursions into Taiwan's airspace so far this year were clearly aimed at Washington and the new US administration. Now, if all that wasn't enough, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Thursday of this week was forced to dismiss reports that the US government has put on hold all arms sales to Taiwan, with the ministry's spokeswoman, Joanne O, oh, telling reporters that her office has not received any such notification from Washington. Now, that statement comes after foreign media reported that the Biden administration has temporarily halted several major arms sales approved by the Trump White House. So, Bill, rock solid, rock solid foundation there. It is, it is a rock-solid foundation, and I think um, the Biden administration is certainly off to a really interesting start with China. Um, I, I have my, my three major kind of takeaways from this. Is First is that, that, that President Biden said that he wanted to dial down the temperature in U.S.-China relations, but 
Beijing um, clearly is not ready to, to cool things down, um, and they, they only waited a few days to test test Biden. Uh, you know, the many analysts were saying that they would do this within the first three months, um, but they they wasted no time. Um, the second thing that that really interests me was that that uh, I think the PLA flights really show that 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 China is running out of ways to signal its objections to U.S. Taiwan time ties. Um, um, they're out of ideas. Kind of the old carrots and sticks uh, aren't aren't really aren't really working anymore. And kind of the fir- the third thing um, I wanted to mention is that the um, yes the, the the statement from the State Department, the rock solid commitment to, to Taiwan. Um, I found it very interesting. Uh, it was striking in, in, in the way it was so pr- precise and um, and blunt. It was really a full throated support for Taiwan, and um, I think. It also signaled that that Washington is is going to continue to take Taiwan seriously, and, and we'll see a lot of continuity and policy from the the Trump administration. That's right. Um, so, one of the big questions I think with the Biden administration is that is it going to continue Trump administration policies designed to pressure China, or is it going to break from that? And so far, what we've seen is actually some degree of continuity. Um, I think many analysts have pointed to that the Biden administration is much more likely to be multilateral about the way it, it pressures China rather than taking unilateral action that uh, will actually sometimes upset or um, just traditional U.S. allies in the region, including South Korea, Japan, um, and as well as Taiwan. Um, but also, just uh, uh, you know, in that sense, just a lot of the Chinese military actions in the past year have been interpreted as attempting to pressure the U.S. and Taiwan uh, because of just strengthening ties with all these diplomatic visits, legislation passed in support of Taiwan, and so forth. Um, and so then, you know, many people have read this as just an early attempt to signal that we will not be happy with uh, strengthening U.S.-Taiwan ties. Like, you know, you should break from the Trump administration in, in regard to this. Um, but then the Biden administration has responded quite strongly, I think, in, in this regard. And also just in terms of the, uh, the the visit by the carrier group into the South China Sea, this kind of freedom of navigation visit. Um, this was scheduled beforehand, and it cannot just be of just you know a random response to uh, an action such as a flyover. And so this is this is seen as, as indicating that just there will continue to be backing of, of Taiwan. Uh, but then what comes next, I think, is, is also a question. I mean, China has indicated that it will continue with this playbook uh, during the Trump administration. It's indicated continuity in terms of military pressuring Taiwan and just uh, what other actions will it take. And I think that sometimes Taiwan will actually just be targeted as a proxy for America, um, particularly during the early Biden administration, just as a way to kind of signal displeasure. And of course, Bill Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, came out on Wednesday, Thursday, US time and said, well, we do hope to cooperate with China. But I mean, where do you think this cooperation puts Taiwan? Yeah, it is. It, you know, they, they, they're emphasizing that they're, they're strategic competitors, but they also need to cooperate in, in areas um, such, as, such as climate change. Um, um, you know, he was also asked during, during the confirmation hearing, hearings about uh, what, would, what about a, a possible uh, China attack on, on Taiwan. And, and he said in very stern terms that would be a very grievous mistake on their part. And I think I think Brian's right. Going forward, we're going to see we're going to see more more tension. We're going to see um, we're going to see Beijing keep turning up the heat to see if if Biden breaks. And I still think the most important thing uh, for Taiwan and, and the United States is for the United States to get its house in order. Um, <laughs> Xi Jinping and his team in Beijing they're they're hardcore Leninists. They only respect strength. They only respect power. They despise uh, weakness and they abhor weakness. And when they look at the U.S. right now, they they see a lot of weakness. And I think that helps explain why they've been so bold and aggressive on the global stage. 
And they think the U.S. is in irreversible decline. So the, the United States needs to get its act together right now immediately. And Brian, of course, these large flights came on a certain weekend of the year in January. A year ago, of course, the city of Wuhan made international headlines. Do you think maybe Beijing's flights had another ulterior motive? Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, I think it to some extent is also aimed at distracting. Um, so I think that it serves this dual function of, of pressuring the Biden administration, but also distracting from just that one year ago. This is when the COVID-19 pandemic began in, in China. Um, you know, China has been been uh, trying to reinforce this narrative now that it did not start in China that maybe began the U.S. Um, or also circulating disinformation about just uh, uh, vaccines that are, are produced by Western countries, um, trying to bolster its own vaccine produced domestically. And so I think this is a way to kind of distract from those headlines and, and just avoid um, the kind of criticism that will follow of, of China's handling of the early stages of the pandemic. Um, also, just the, that China was blamed for being the origin of this pandemic in that sense. And so I think it serves these kind of different strategies. And I think that... Uh, there's more than one purpose for doing this, maybe. And, you know, even just these these military flyovers or, or military drilling, it does actually serve the purposes of providing training for Chinese troops. Just It happens on such an, uh, so, so it's common uh, just every day, nearly, for some parts of this past year, that it actually, it, it's a way to kind of probe Taiwan's defenses, to allow people to have experience in, in conducting these kind of things, because China has not actually conducted any military inventions in, in a very long time, in decades. Um, so I think it, it's more than one purpose that this happens, actually. And of course, Bill... While it makes international headlines and the world gasps or screams the word war across the Daily Mail newspaper in England, uh, people in here in Taiwan just don't seem to be bothered about it. Housing prices are going up and people are going about their everyday business. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, people abroad always think that, that um, the Taiwanese must be hiding away in air shelters or, or air defense shelters <laughs> and, and, and stocking up on rice and and getting ready for 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 war, but I think um, you know the Taiwanese have become immune to this. They've 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 been, been been dealing with this type of threat, this news for 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 decades, and I think it's um, I think it's pretty clear that, that that China is not not ready to make any kind of big move on Taiwan yet. Yeah, absolutely right. And just uh, so it's funny, just that people think that t people in Taiwan are panicking. You have all these questions like, is it safe to come to Taiwan or is it safe to do business with Taiwan and that kind of thing. Just uh, I see these comments floating around and as, as reactions to these news articles about um, just Chinese military threats. But then life goes on as normal. I think just people are, are just very used to it. And that's actually kind of the funny thing, though, that just in the past year that there has been such a ramp up in terms of uh, Chinese attempts at militarily intimidating Taiwan, but just nobody actually is too bothered by that. And so that actually does make me a little concerned actually. Um, but at the same time, that's also just life, I guess. And moving on from cross-strait issues to local issues. And the Cabinet this week accepted party caucus consensus on cuts to the general budget, giving the nod to an agreed reduction of 25.5 billion NT from the government's proposed 2021 budget. Now, the nod came after lawmakers from the ruling and opposition parties reached a consensus on budgetary cuts during ongoing but sometimes heated negotiations. Now, DPP lawmakers agreed last Friday to the cuts, and that's 25.5 billion NT, or around 1.18% of the total 2.1615 trillion NT in planned government expenditures for this year. Now, the planned budget cuts contain 20% less for public relations by government agencies, 5% less for subsidies to local governments, and a 3% decline on spending for military equipment and facilities. The cuts also include 40% less for trips to China, 5% less for overseas trips and training, as well as 5% cuts in budgetary spending for outside 
sourcing government projects. Now, Cabinet Secretary-General Li Meng-Yen said the government agreed to the cuts in the interest of quickly passing the budget because, of course, it's already the old, nearly February and the government needs money to spend. So, Bill, I mean, we've got interesting cuts there. We've got the biggest one, of course, was the 20% less for public public relations by the government agencies and one of the China Times called it propaganda the, the, the KMT didn't want spending on government propaganda as a strategic communications guy that's that's what really jumped out at me um, I think it's ridiculous I mean now is the time for Taiwan to be telling its story it's got a great it's got a great story with the way it's been able to to contain uh, contain COVID. It's this heroic, a heroic effort here. And it's now it's the time to start telling that story uh, internally and domestically, getting people um, aware of it. I, I keep, you know, when, when I'm watching CNN, I'm always admiring other countries that are coming on air with, with various types of very slick, polished ads about, um, with the general theme of once COVID is over, please come back. Um, waiting for Taiwan to do something like that. I saw on Twitter, someone was tweeting about some ads in, in the San Francisco Bay Area in the U.S. that have been been pretty impressive. But again, um, you know, now's the time for Taiwan to be spending on PR and telling its story. So 20% less for government propaganda, as some people are calling it. <laughs> yeah, the KMT seems to be very intent on targeting this issue. For example, just claiming the government is spending public money on producing ads to sell ractopamine treated pork to the Taiwanese public, for example. Um, the KMT is claiming that the government's spending money on ads, on propaganda distributed to the internet, on uh, just Facebook advertisements and, and that sort of thing to try to mislead the public. Um, and it's also interesting, too, that at this time in which Taiwan has gained international credibility, there's a lot of focus on Taiwan because of its successes fighting off COVID-19. Um, this has had led to some improvements in diplomatic relations, and the KMT has actually tried to target that. For example, tried to cut funding for the U.S. mission, uh, as well as to the uh, Czech Republic. And these are countries in which, you know, just we have had diplomatic visits to Taiwan uh, by just Czech politicians, by American politicians the past year. And so it seems like it would make more sense to spend money on that. But the KMT is now targeting this. And it kind of latches on to these unusual reasons, claiming that Xiaobi Kim, Taiwan's representative to the U.S., for example, just claimed these things about U.S. landmines and, and so forth. And so that were false. The KMT is claiming that. And so that's why we should cut the budget. Um, also, just targeting, for example, um, the the just uh, just in general, Taiwan's success in that sense, and trying to tear things down. Another another target of the KMT was, for example, China Airlines, um, just because of concerns about China Airlines distributing medical supplies to the rest of the world as part of medical diplomacy by Taiwan, and then just this being confused for China. Um, so there were calls to change China Airlines as some uh, in some way to strengthen the association with Taiwan, and the KMT is now targeting China Airlines. Um, and also, just uh, it's kind of surprising to me in this year, as just we talked about, of military threats against Taiwan. Just then, there is a cut to the budget of the military. It's, it's little, 3%, but still, that still happened, actually. So, yeah. And of course, Brian, there's also 5% less for subsidies to local governments. I mean, the local governments, obviously, they, they all complain about having not enough money because they can't fix their books properly, and now they got 5% less to spend. That's right. And also, um, uh, there are many local governments that are controlled by the KMT at present because of their successes in uh, 2018 elections. And so, a lot of these kind of local governments that are KMT-controlled have targeted the Tsai administration on everything from ractopamine-treated pork to... Uh, coronavirus fighting measures. And so it's also that that's also a little surprising. I would think the KMT would try to push for more money to local governments in that sense, uh, particularly because of, of COVID-19. I'm actually also just generally surprised that because of COVID-19, there has not been increased uh, just subsidies, for example, for just businesses, because you know the businesses have been hurt because of COVID-19 and there's no tourism and that kind of thing. And Bill, 5% less for local governments. 
Yeah, the, the poor local governments. The poor local local governments, right? At a, a time when they when they really need it. I also found interesting that the, the the cuts in spending for trips to China, in a way, that's like giving up broccoli for Lent. In a way, I think that was forty percent. Forty percent cuts. To, yeah, 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 yeah. There was also another five percent cut for budgetary spending for outsourcing of government projects. Yeah, that's. So what, is, what does that mean? Does it mean that the government can't sort of outsource its projects, it's get less money to get other people involved in helping the government? Right, right. And then they'll probably end up spending more doing doing these projects themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else there, Brian, with the cuts? I mean, it was like you said, in military spending, it was only 3%, but apparently it was on equipment and facilities. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's, it's, it's kind of surprising to me, um, just in general. Just uh, There's always criticism of Taiwan, for example, for not spending enough on the military from the U.S. and, and other interested parties in, in, in just regional affairs. And so that, that kind of actually surprises me. I'm surprised that did not become a bigger issue, actually. Maybe they'll just have to recycle their boot laces. Anyway, staying in the sort of same tone about local governments and the central government, several Pangreen politicians came out in support of the early decommissioning of the Taijong power plant this week. Those backing the move included Chen Bo Wei of the Taiwan State Building Party and Deputy Legislative Speaker Tsai Chi Chung. Now, speaking during a press conference, they said they believe the decommissioning of the power plant's coal-powered unit, number one, should be accelerated and brought forward to 2027 from the current time frame of 2029, and that the coal-fired Unit 2 should cease operations early, but it should not be dismantled in case of an emergency. And they also said the decommissioning of all the plant's 10 units be brought forward from the original date of 2046 to 2035. The power plant, of course, has become a rallying point for Taijong Mayor Liu Shou-yen since she took office. And as we've discussed on this show in the past, Liu has been butting heads with the central government over the plant's closure due to what many see as it's being the cause of worsening air pollution in the city. Now, on hearing the calls from the Pangreen politicians, Lou also said she believes they were possibly playing politics. So, Brian, playing politics or a genuine belief that the power plant should be closed? And if the latter, how much support or pull do these Pangreen politicians have when it comes to swaying the central government's opinion? It's a question. It's a question because this has been such a contested issue in Taichung for such a long time. And, and Lucio Yen, for example, was elected claiming that she would uh, just reduce problems with air pollution uh, to close the plant uh, to, to, to do that. And just she wasn't able to do that, actually. And that's uh, one of the re- reasons for a backlash against her. And there was kind of much mockery of her on social media, for example, just for these odd measures to even just uh, tout that she's doing things, just having a bottle of air, clean air, and handing out to citizens, for example. Um, so I think in some sense it can be seen as an attempt by DP politicians to steal her thunder in that sense to actually get this done. And so, you know, Chen Boy has, has has staked out a position as a pan-green politician, for example, that is opposed to her as as the, the mayor of Taichung as a KMT politician, um, and is trying to actually get this done. And so I think this is that attempt. Um, but then they will always encounter these issues with uh, contestation between the central and local governments um, with Thai power, which sometimes is not so, uh, which is sometimes resistant to calls from local politicians to make changes to its policy. Um, and just that there have been so many politicians that have tried to actually get this done, and there have not people that this has not been accomplished to date. And so it's a question whether this push will actually affect that. And I think that the, the KMT will continue to use this issue of air pollution as a way to bolster uh, pushing for nuclear energy, for example. And so I think this will play into the different energy policies of the different parties, and, and there will be political contestation along those lines. And of course, Bill, they did say that, you know, one unit should be kept in case of emergencies. Right, right. And, and what would those emergencies be? Just a, a blackout or... or 
the televisions go dead. Right. <laughs> no air conditioning in the yeah. summer. <laughs> I mean, what, what do you think about this playoff? It's obviously the Grepan Green have come out and said you've got to decommission it early. Lucio Yen's made that a major policy, and now the central government's been put in a bit of a in the rock and a hard place. One could argue. Yeah, it just goes back to just just energy. Energy security is just going to be one of the biggest issues going forward in Taiwan. Absolutely, um, because I think uh, just production lines will will stop if if there's a power outage. And Taiwan has always had issues with power grid, and there's increasing focus on Taiwan as well because of just let's say semiconductor manufacturing in Taiwan is that it is such a critical node in the supply chain worldwide, and uh, just that that so much is dependent on Taiwan presently that the world is maybe even overreliant on Taiwan. But then something that might incentivize uh, companies to move out of Taiwan, for example, would be actually continual power outages because this leads to loss of productivity, loss of profits, and so forth. Um, it's Reliable, and so that is the balance I think just between the demands of the Taichung citizenry and let's say the demands of industry. And so politicians will probably have to navigate that, um, and that's one of the issues I think regarding this issue and why it hasn't been resolved for such a long time. And of course, I read last week that there's going to be a referendum calling for the fourth nuclear power plant to be brought back online, Brian. But of course, that's a bit of an issue because half of it's now back in America. Yeah, that is, and uh, it's, it's it's somewhat puzzling in that respect that the Pan Green, uh, sorry, the Pan Blue Camp is so intent on starting, uh, restarting nuclear reactor number four to signify that nuclear energy is safe for Taiwan. I think I think that's the, why they're so focused on that reactor in uh, specifically because this is oftentimes viewed as the most dangerous reactor that uses mixed parts, and it has been such an issue in the past uh, decades, really. Um, and I think they will be continued just pushing for nuclear energy by the Pan Blue Camp in that sense. And I think this will just become another referendum issue, a uh, local versus a uh, local issues being put on the national stage in that sense. We have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and we're going to blast off into space now as a SpaceX rocket carrying two Taiwanese satellites successfully lifted off from Cape Canaveral in Florida on Sunday after a three-day delay caused by safety inspections and weather issues. The rocket was carrying a satellite produced by the new Taipei-based Magami Mobile Entertainment Group and the Flying Squirrel miniature CubeSat satellite, which was developed by the National Central University. And I spoke with Lauren Jung, a professor at the National Central University's Centre for Astronautical Physics and Engineering, to learn more about Taiwan's latest foray into space and what his satellite will be doing in the upper atmosphere. Hello, Lauren. Hey, Gavin. So your satellite blasted off from Florida on Sunday, but apparently there was a, there was a bit of a delay there caused by some safety inspections and some weather issues. Oh, yeah. So, well, we originally planned to uh, go up on Saturday night, but um, that launch was scrubbed because of the weather at the Cape, and uh, so the uh, launch went up on Sunday. Right, and of course, your CubeSat satellite, I mean, what does it actually do in the upper atmosphere? Right, so uh, our CubeSat measures the upper atmosphere, a part of it called the ionosphere. This is important for uh, satellite communications and also over-the-horizon radar, uh, sorry, radio communications, since uh, it can change the direction and speed at which these signals travel and therefore control the accuracy of your GPS, your satellite phone, or uh, even the uh, frequencies your pilot uh, uses to communicate to the ground when they're flying over the Pacific Ocean. And what, do you be, what will you be doing with the data that you're collecting? Well, the ultimate objective is from the measurements uh, we make, we'd like to uh, be able to have a better idea 
predicting some of the uh, phenomena in the ionosphere that can affect radio propagation and GPS accuracy. And also just the flight data from the spacecraft itself can tell us a lot about how our design is functioning on orbit how its orbit is changing and being affected by the upper atmosphere, and also gives our students a very good um, hands-on opportunity on uh, mission control and flight operations so we can better improve our uh, spacecraft systems. Will you be using this internally at the moment, or do you hope to take it to the private sector and possibly sell the data somewhere? Well, our data, uh, the main mission product of this mission is science data, so... Um, Scientists generally being pretty open people, we uh, hope to uh, have that uh, publicized and available online for free, which is pretty much in convention with most science uh, mission data. Uh, in terms of the uh, flight data of the spacecraft, um, once we've gone through and uh, done quality control on that, we're also uh, looking into the possibility of making that available to the community. So, uh, you know, uh, we can all uh, work together to improve the uh, designs that we use for our spacecraft. So uh, we're an academic institution, um, which is a nonprofit by definition, which means that we are functionally incapable of making a profit, I guess, outside of parking. Right, and of course, as we speak, there's a bit of a technical hitch at your end, but apparently hand radio operators around the world are picking up your satellite. Yeah, absolutely. So one important part of uh, mission operations is being able to communicate with your satellite. You need to be able to monitor um, the uh, what we call the beacon data that it sends down, where it tells you that it's alive and tells you what how it's operating. And at the same time, you have to be able to uplink commands to the spacecraft. So, for example, if we find in the beacon data something is wrong or we want to tell the spacecraft to go into some other operational mode, we have to be able to send a command to the spacecraft that it can receive, understand, and therefore execute. And this is even more complicated because in the case of our spacecraft, it's really far away, anywhere between 500 to 2,000 kilometers away uh, at any given time. And uh, it only passes over uh, Taiwan for about three or four times per day and each time usually on the order of about 10 minutes. So we really don't have that, that long uh, period of time to communicate with our spacecraft over an extremely long distance and extremely high speeds. So um, what happened was uh, after launch, we waited for the first time the spacecraft would fly over Taiwan, and at our ground station we got nothing. And, of course, we, this, we found this uh, very troubling, but there are a lot of uh, ham radio operators around the world who are interested in tracking satellites, and... Uh, we made the information about um, our satellite, the, uh, the information you need to predict the orbit, to know what communications frequencies it uses, everything you need to track the satellite. And about five hours after the spacecraft went up, we got a report from a ham radio operator in Europe that they had uh, received our signal. And in fact, when we looked at the data they provided, both the frequency, the time at which they received the signal, and the fact the signal is repeated every 30 seconds, that's pretty much identical with what our spacecraft transmits. And later on, some more uh, ham radio operators, as well as our colleagues that we worked with abroad in Singapore, in the States, and uh, in India, actually went and received our signal for us. So we're essentially performing flight control uh, sort of in a roundabout way right now. So right now our ground station, um, we're trying, still trying to fix, but we can receive flight data from the spacecraft just fine from our partners um, abroad, as well as from the uh, amateur radio community. And what about the lifespan of the satellite? The uh, mission lifetime is planned to be one year. Now, our spacecraft is in low Earth orbit, which is still in the uppermost layers of the Earth's atmosphere, so there's still, it still experiences atmospheric drag. And so based on the orbit that we're currently in, we expect the spacecraft to last for about four to five years before it finally reenters.
And of course, Lauren, there was some other space-related news this week when the National Applied Research Laboratories announced that Guo Tongxin has been selected as the new Director General of the National Space Organization. And of course, as you know, Lauren, Guo has long stressed the need for Taiwan to have the ability to launch its own satellites instead of relying on foreign space transportation services such as SpaceX to send them into orbit. So I think Guo will do a good job there. Well, a launch vehicle is certainly a very important part of the overall space system. Of course, uh, Ultimately, uh, if you ask me, the uh, most important thing that comes out of any space mission, from launch vehicles to spacecraft to uh, uh, mission operations, the ultimate, ultimately the most valuable thing that comes out of it is the data, because that's data that, you real, that has some important purpose, whether it's for science, for defense, for um, civil uh, purposes, or even commercial purposes. And that data couldn't have been acquired anywhere else than, than in space. So you need a spacecraft to carry out the mission to provide that data and send it back to Earth. And of course, you need a way of getting the spacecraft up into orbit, which means you need a launch vehicle. So they're all part of this integrated system. And certainly, one part that we're currently missing in Taiwan is an indigenous launch vehicle that is reliable enough to the point where we're comfortable sending our uh, uh, the satellites that we devote a lot of resource uh, resources and time into developing um, up on them. Do you think the government will be willing to actually pump money into the National Space Organization if Guo comes along and says, we need this ability now? Well, he certainly, uh, he certainly has a lot of experience in launch vehicle development, and he's certainly uh, very active and high profile in uh, whipping up uh, public um, attention and interest, which is a good thing. And um, in terms of uh, government investment, so the uh, Thai administration has indicated that uh, aerospace and defense is a very big part of the... Uh, uh, their their vision in terms of uh, the key industries that Taiwan should devote resources into developing. So we're hopeful that the government will uh, make the necessary investments, both in academia, in private industry, and even in uh, government organizations that are needed for the development of these key technologies. Because as we all know, R&D is something that can take a long time and uh, with oftentimes with a lot of risk and uh, requires a fairly sustained commitment to uh, carry out. Right, thank you very much, Laura, and I hope that your CubeSat satellite lives long and prospers in the upper atmosphere. Thank you. May the force be with you. That was me in conversation with Lauren Jung of the National Central University's Centre for Astronautical Physics and Engineering. And Google on Wednesday of this week opened a new office in New Taipei's Banqiao district at the Taipei Far Eastern Telecom Park. The company says the office will serve as its largest hardware research and development base outside of the United States and is equipped with a global security and resilience service team and a product showroom. And of course it's also an employee friendly place as local cable television news channels made great play of informing their viewers when they were taken there and filmed it. The office has an open area design, a gym, a massage room a nap room, a dining area where apparently professional baristas make coffee for employees and it also boasts a health centre where medical staff provide employees with physical and mental health consulting services. Now speaking to reporters, Google Vice President of Hardware Elmer Pung said the company was grateful for Taiwan's efforts in coronavirus prevention and the government's support of the company's presence here. He also said those factors helped pave the way for the opening of the new Banqiao office as scheduled. So Bill, of course... Google comes here quite a bit and the government heap loads of praise on Google. 
It does. It does. And I, I, I was very envious of the, 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 the employee friendly venue with all the, all the, all the, all the bells and whistles. I've always wanted to work at a place like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's really, really remarkable. So Google's number of employees in Taiwan has, have, has increased tenfold in the last five years. It's really, really remarkable. And I think it's, a, it's another example of how Taiwan has had some success in, in positioning itself as kind of an, an R&D hub. We've had similar announcements recently by by big companies, big tech companies like Microsoft and 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 Cisco, um, you know the you know the challenge though is is um, employees are they going to are they going to be able to find the talent um, to staff these these wonderful new uh, facilities and offices and I, you know the Carnegie Endowment released a great study last year about this um, chronic talent shortfall in Taiwan and and, and in some ways. Um, Taiwan is a victim of its own success. I mean, there's, there's high demand for data scientists and, and software scientists in these new kind of forward-looking uh, industries, uh, but the schools, the universities just aren't keeping up with with demand. And, you know, part of the problem, like I said, Taiwan's a victim of its own success. Um, a, a lot of the talented young Taiwanese prefer working um, in the hardware industries, especially in semiconductors for these uh, legacy firms like TSMC and, and Media Tech. Um, you know, jobs with these these types of employers are, are, are very lucrative. They're, they're more stable. Um, so the, the young grads are, are less willing to take a risk with a startup firm or, or more a future-facing uh, industry. So uh, that that's that really discourages the kind of risk taking and entrepreneurship that Taiwan really will need going forward to compete with uh, the, uh, you know larger economies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, because low salaries, for example, drive a lot of people to go abroad. Uh, Taiwan has long term chronic issues regarding brain drain, and so when Western companies actually do set up a big Silicon Valley companies set up in in Taiwan, I think it is encouraging for people to stay here and and so forth. I think also just the model in which uh, Google have, provides all these services that's actually fairly uh, you don't really see that in in a lot of Taiwanese tech companies, and so I think that perhaps if this model spreads, it could become more encouraging and people stay here. I mean, you do see this in some, uh, for example, co-working spaces and for tech companies and, and that sort of thing now, but not on the scale, the way that you have this for Google and Facebook and so forth. And so I think the uh, Tide administration will always tout this sort of thing as uh, Western companies being encouraged to uh, to build facilities in Taiwan, to invest in Taiwan, and so forth. But the question is, will they stay here? I think it's interesting, though, that Google has set up uh, so many facilities here. Uh, for example, if I recall correctly, three out of its four Asia data centers are in Taiwan, uh, despite the, for example, geopolitical risks. Um, the other one is in, in Singapore. Um, I think that's because of just uh, Taiwan as a convenient transportation hub connecting different parts of Asia um, and so forth, but also just uh, I think that will that will be encouraging actually if other companies come here. Just it's also a question for me: Will the government have the initiative to actually make conditions uh, right for companies to want to come here? Because there are so much bureaucratic loops for companies to come here and and set up uh, that people have to jump through for startups, for entrepreneurs, and that sort of thing. Um, that's also a question. I mean, when it's, when it's Google, so they can just cut through a lot of that. But then uh, if Google comes here, that will encourage smaller companies to also do that. But then it will also just uh, the ecosystem I think has issues. Yeah, and, and one other thing is what a key factor that attracts these companies um, to, ex to come to Taiwan to expand in Taiwan is is the protection of, of intellectual property. And this is really really important for Taiwan to continue to strengthen its reputation in this area because um, these companies feel like their their IP will be safe here. And of course, Bill, you mentioned you'd like to work in an environment that has a gym, a massage room, a nap room, a dining area where professional <laughs> baristas make coffee for you, and a health center. I mean, do you see this 
this system, this idea, this concept being adopted by local companies? I, I do think I, I do think it's it will be kind of contagious that uh, local companies to compete with these with these multinationals will have to go go forward in this direction. It's not going to happen soon. I, it will happen very gradually. But um, I think I think the younger generation they they are expecting these types of perks. Absolutely, because just you can the option is just to go abroad and, and then you can have these perks in somewhere else. And so I think local companies uh, will have to adopt this. But then the challenge is: Are they cognizant of that? Do they realize that actually this is something you have to do? And I think that sometimes just the leadership does not realize that you have to change practices, long-standing practices, in order to be competitive or just adopt to to trends. Um, and I think that's an issue. I mean, we do see these kind of startups popping up all over the place now, and, and smaller startups are, are using them. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, co-working spaces. Um, but then just uh, just in terms of companies offering these different services. I I mean, you do see this in other parts of East Asia in which you have large companies that offer all these services that you're supposed to be there for life and they, they, they take care of you. Um, but then combining this with the, the Silicon Valley model, I think that's, that's what we'll have to see. And moving away from Google to something less attractive and smoking with the Consumers Foundation this week released a report concerning the sale of cigarettes to minors. And it found that teenagers can easily purchase cigarettes at 37.1% of stores island-wide that sell the item, even though it's in fact illegal and a violation of the Tobacco Hazards Prevention Act. Now, according to the foundation, it randomly inspected 660 businesses, including grocery stores, internet cafes, convenience stores and other sellers between April and October of last year. It sent in buyers to said stores, posing as high school students in uniform. Now, the foundation found that the teenagers were able to buy cigarettes of 47.6% of grocery stores and internet cafes, 41.6% of beetle nut stands, 27.2% of convenience stores, and 21% of supermarkets and hypermarkets. Now, the maximum fine for selling cigarettes to a minor is now 50,000 NT, and the Consumers Foundation says it's seeking to amend that act to raise the maximum fine to 250,000 NT. But, of course, all this actually took place as the government is facing questions by anti-smoking groups such as the John Tung Foundation who are questioning whether the government is is it going to let vaping become legal bill yeah that's uh that's that's uh, that's a big issue but um but first, going back to the, the sales of the, the cigarettes to minors, uh, my, my default setting is always empathy rather than outrage. And I, I have to <laughs> feel some sympathy for the clerks at the, the local convenience stores uh, in my neighborhood. They have to be masters at multitasking, jugglers. I mean, they serve as baristas. They ring up sales. They're dealing with people paying bills. They're dealing with people picking up packages. And then my, my daughters and I come in and order five ice cream cones. And then they're busy with that. So um, I, I can see how they're, you know, they they have a lot going on. Uh, on the other hand, though, the, the, this uh, this investigation, uh, they, they did have people posing as, as high school students in uniforms, which would probably scream out, card me. Um, but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 interesting. But the, the the vaping the vaping issue is is a is a pressing one. I know the big all the big tobacco companies have been been doing some pretty strong advocacy work. Um, trying to get the, the, the government to open up this market and, and uh, arguing that its consumers should should have these choices. They should be able to have strawberry-flavored, chocolate-flavored products or whatever to enjoy. So um, this is um, – and I see a lot of people vaping on the streets too. I guess they bring, they bring that, that, that stuff into the country. 
And Brian, I mean, was vaping because there's concern all over the world that it attracts young people because it's fashionable, supposedly. I mean, do you think a fine of 50,000 NT, even 250,000 NT for the illegal sale of tobacco products to minors is enough? I don't actually think I'll deter people because there, there, there are people that will think it's cool and they want to do it. And I do see it on the street and, and there are some stores that do sell it that I encounter. Um, so I, I don't actually think it's d- deterred people. And I think that this, this is, is a question of, I guess, enforcement. Um, but also just I think it's, it's, it is actually very difficult to stop because this trend has taken off worldwide. And so people will also do it in Taiwan, um, whether the authorities like it or not. Um, but yeah, I mean, going back to the issue regarding carding, I, mean, I think that's absolutely true, just that convenience store clerks have to deal with so much and just dealing with customers that want cigarettes and there's such a different choices available. Um, people get really angry sometimes, just like, oh, you're too slow about getting the cigarettes and, and that kind of thing. I see that a lot. Um, but I also think it's generally the case in, in Taiwan that there's not a real culture of carding um, regarding alcohol sales, for example, uh, tobacco sales and that sort of thing. So it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me in general that there's also not carding for the tobacco sales. I think that this, that's just... Uh, uh, it's, it's a larger issue than that. It's also it has to do with just that that there's not just this uh, tradition of carding in in convenience stores or supermarkets and and that sort of thing. And so it just doesn't surprise me. And I think actually just focusing it on as just this issue regarding cigarette sales or tobacco sales is kind of misleading because it's it's, it's actually it applies to cigarettes and alcohol and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think um, you know what's what's interesting that the the, the the American Chamber of Commerce puts out a white paper every year with with uh, regulatory. Uh, you know, long list of regulatory issues, and there's a chapter about tobacco. And, and the most recent white paper, um, the big issue for the tobacco industry was the illegal sales of cigarettes, which is which is um, apparently a huge huge problem in Taiwan, um, especially cigarettes that are produced in large illicit illicit factories. I mean, 2019, a total of 23 million packs of these illegal cigarettes, they're called cheap whites, uh, were confiscated. And this was the third highest in history. Um, and and the, the seizure set a record for market value. And, you know, the problem with these cigarettes is that they contain all kinds of nasty stuff. I mean, various studies have found bits of plastic and, and, and animal excrement, all kinds of all kinds of stuff end up in these cigarettes. So, you know, you know, if the kids aren't buying cigarettes in, in, in the convenience store, maybe they're buying them on the street corner, and, and who knows what's in these cigarettes. So, Brian, the government should maybe make it its policy to actually run better anti-smoking campaigns. Uh, that's true. I think a lot of the uh, anti-drug or anti-smoking ads are just uh, quite heavy-handed. <laughs> and just it doesn't actually, they don't, they, it doesn't caught on in terms of, for example, just we talked about vaping, that it's cool among young people. Well, the government also has to somehow be more in touch with young people in that sense. And it's kind of surprising sometimes just because the government is quite effective in, in some forms of advertising, for example. Let's say with the coronavirus-related uh, advertising, a lot is actually very kind of, uh, it appeals to young people. They, they use, you know, cute ads or, or hip uh, I don't know, anime characters. <laughs> but, but I think in terms of this, less so. And before we go this week, we talked about Taiwan getting international sporting events several weeks ago. But seeing as Bill's in the studio, well, he's trying to bring the America's Cup to Taiwan. Yes, I am. Um, you know, when I was at AmCham, I launched an initiative, a big ideas initiative, uh, trying to get the organization to be... Um, to seize on on big ideas that would really transform Taiwan, that would really help tai- take Taiwan to the next level, and I really see the America's Cup as being one of these one of these big ideas. Um, the, the, the the competition is going on now in in in, in New Zealand, and the winner in March uh, will get to choose um, where the next America's Cup will be in 2023 and 2024, and um, I think Kaohsiung could be could be a great 
great spot for it. They've got the water, they've got the space for the, the, the various facilities, and it could, it could really be a game changer for Taiwan. It would lift Taiwan's visibility, it would create jobs, and it would make Taiwan a, a, an important stop for a lot of these other types of uh, sailing, ocean races that are going on. And of course, while some of our li- listeners might sort of balk at that idea, of course, Bill, you actually watch the America's Cup from the sea, which means that cruise liners could serve as a platform for the fans. That's right. That's right. There, there could be um, what we call a floating amphitheater. Um, you know, Taiwan, uh, Kaohsiung is trying to position itself as a major hub for cruise ships, so they could have special cruises for, for cruise ships that would come to park out at sea and um, and be like a, a floating stadium to watch to watch these races and and they're really remarkable now uh, sailing has uh, these 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 yachts look more like spaceships than than boats uh, right now the way they glide over the glide over the surface of of the sea um um, you know, it's as I mentioned, it's going on now. You can watch the competitions on, on YouTube. Um, it's a, it's a become a very high-tech sport. Um, these teams uh, spend a lot of money. It's not a one-off weekend thing. Um, it would start it would start in in October in 2023 and stretch into March in 2024. These teams, which average about 120 people, would come uh, nine months in advance. Uh, to be training, to be setting up their 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 facilities, they'd be spending a lot of money on on building and re- refitting their boats, and it it it's, it's it would be a big economic boost for Kaohsiung. Yeah, I think uh, there's also uh, more focus on Taiwan because of COVID, and, and this is a time for I think sporting events to take place in Taiwan. Um, Taiwan has always tried to aim for sporting events in the past few years. I mean, we had the university aid, for example, in Taipei. Um, I think also it's, it's good to see sporting events take place outside of Taipei, um, just because that is good for development in, in other parts of the country. And I think that just uh, this is an opportunity for Taiwan. Um, but again, I think always the issue is is sometimes will the government actually be willing to cut through the paperwork to do this kind of thing, um, and also just attracting interest. I think um, because I think there is sometimes this mal in terms of doing things to actively pro promote Taiwan in in a lot of these fields in which Taiwan actually stands the game. What about the infrastructure, Brian? Do That's there's that too. <laughs> a, a lot of infrastructure. I think so um, too, but I think that hopefully the uh, the mayoral administration in Kaohsiung is is willing to do that under Chen Shimai. Um Yeah. It would. It wouldn't be like the Olympics, where you have to build a big stadium. A lot of this, a lot of the infrastructure, a lot of the buildings um, involve modular construction uh, pieces that are that are brought in here and just snapped together, like like I guess like like Lego sets. Um, but Brian makes an excellent point, though, about about COVID. Taiwan's success in, in containing the pandemic really positions itself well um, to to go after the events like this. So many other countries in the world right now are still overwhelmed with with battling the pandemic. They can't can't think about they can't look over the horizon to start bidding on these types of um, events. Taiwan Taiwan can. And um, so it's really an excellent time for Taiwan. They should seize this moment. No doubt it would be it'd be a stretch. It'd be a, a good stretch for Taiwan. It's it's a big big idea. It's a it's a big project. But um, you know, I really think Taiwan needs to do more of this. And that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan this week. This week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Bill Foreman. It's been a lot of fun. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week.
And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.